Hi, my name is Eleonore and I beat the often path by hunting down microorganisms that destroy plastic waste. Can we get rid of all of the plastic floating in the oceans right now? Like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, 1.6 million square kilometers of largely plastic trash floating in the ocean right at this very moment? Well, some people see this problem in single-use plastics as one of the greatest challenges facing our species today. Others, like my guest on the podcast today, Eleonora Izath, see this as a locked resource or something that has great potential to be used, reused, and exploited for further gain while cleaning up the oceans in the process. Her startup, Bee Worm, is developing a biocatalytic recycling process that decomposes plastic waste into natural raw materials in a genuinely fascinating and potentially scalable solution to this gigantic problem. I'm super excited for you to meet my guest today, Eleonora Isath. I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. Well, welcome to the show. So first of all, Eleonora, it's a pleasure to have you here. Second of all, plastic waste. Not that big of a problem, so you're wasting your time. Why even bother? <laughs> Well, I actually think it's a really big problem and I don't only think that I know that because I've been looking into this problem for quite a while now. So it has been five years. I started looking into it uh, during my studies and uh, ever since I, I keep going. And yeah, I think it's one of the world's biggest problems getting bigger and bigger every year as we're producing more and more plastics every year. Okay, so talk to me about this great Pacific garbage patch, whatever that is. It's small, right? Just a tiny little thing uh, to sweep it under the rug, no doubt. I wish it was. No, unfortunately, it's pretty big. And it's only one out of five of these trash islands that we have right now. Uh, I think it has currently the size of 1.6 million square kilometers. I usually So for the people listening, the that's like what? That's like five or six miles? Um, I don't know miles because <laughs> I'm from Europe, um, but I think it's I think it's six hundred thousand. Yeah, it's <laughs> so something comparable in the U.S. It's like the size of Texas or something, or twice okay. the size yeah. of Texas. Well, it's pretty big. Like imagine something pretty big. Yeah. Um, well, Texas yeah, is only it's... like six or seven miles across. <laughs> okay. That's that's not true. That's not true. Okay, so usually one of five um, giant islands. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and it, it's not going to go away uh, anytime soon uh, because obviously plastics are pretty resilient. Um, the problem is that the chemical structure of plastics is pretty strong. So it's hard for natural organisms to degrade the plastics. But there are a few, and that's what we do at Beeworm, actually. We're hunting down these microorganisms, these little creatures that can split up the plastic molecules into shorter fragments. And basically what comes out there are raw materials that can be reused uh, to produce new plastics. So we're not only taking care of the waste, but we also try to make something out of it that is usable. So do you think that one of the ways that I personally can combat this is by drinking as much Coca-Cola as I possibly can? Is that a good <laughs> way that I can help reduce the amount of plastic that ends up in the ocean? Well, I think it's not good for you and not good for the environment. <laughs> uh, no, definitely not. So um, okay. obviously uh, reducing plastics is, is number one. So I don't know if you're familiar with the pyramids of... Uh, 
how to solve the waste problem, but it's reduce, reuse, recycle. So before we recycle, yes. each and every one of us should avoid as much as possible. <laughs> I, I completely agree. And I, I try to take, you know, it's not always easy. I think probably it's easier where you are. But here, you know, there are certain things that I do or I try to do. Like I get soap that's not in plastic packaging. I use a shampoo bar instead of shampoo that comes in a tube. So I do my best. But I have read that despite all of our best efforts to reduce the amount of single-use plastic that we use, the amount of plastic that we're dumping is only growing. And in fact, it hasn't yeah. really even slowed in the reduce component of this. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it's right. So that doesn't mean yeah. that not everyone should give their best. But I mean, there are a lot True. of factors playing into this. So first of all, the pandemics was also a major driver of plastic production, especially of single-use plastics, because everything that needs to be like really hygienic is usually single-use plastics. You use it once, you throw it away. And uh, then, of course, there is a lot of uh, emerging countries right now using plastics, and it's, it's, it's their right, because we have been doing it for a long time as well. But uh, obviously, if 1.3 yeah. uh, billion people start using plastics in a huge amount, uh, things are not going to get any better. And um, yeah, I mean, I, what is important to say there, though, is the plastic itself is not the problem. Like, it's not the material that is like evil and trying to like kill us. The material doesn't have any moral, usually. I don't know. At least I think it doesn't. <laughs> that we're aware um, of. Yeah. Hopefully. I <laughs> uh, no, Anyway, so um, the pl plastic itself is not a problem. It's actually a pretty good material, and. When it was invented in the 1940s, 50s, people were super hyped about it because they thought like, wow, all our problems are solved now. It's so light. It's so easy to make. It's so cheap. It's going to solve everything. And people were super hyped about it. Uh, the only problem or the only the biggest problem is the that it's too stable for its use. Like basically a single plastic, for example, I don't know, like a, a fork made out of plastics. Uh, can resist for like 400 years in the environment if they if the right organisms aren't around but it's used for like five seconds and that's the problem here so the use and the material don't fit to each other and mm. we have to come up with a bunch of solutions in order to like even this out so we have to come up with other materials for single-use things first first of all and then for all the plastics chemical plastics that we use uh, in our products, we need to come up with solutions how to take them back to the circle and to make something useful out of it. But technically, that's all possible. Technically, um, it wouldn't be so hard to make a fully recyclable plastic. The problem is we don't do it because we like cheap and easy things, right? So yes. <laughs> it's yes, also a mentality problem. <laughs> yes, we do. So would you consider yourself as being a, a pessimist or a realist or have you always been an optimist? How have you noticed these big problems and studied them without getting depressed? Or was that a part of it before you came up with some solutions? It's it's a part of it. <laughs> I would say I'm like yeah. I'm a um, realist usually, a, 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 an optimistic realist. It's also what we claim for our team. We try to be optimistic realists because if you're not optimistic, you're not going to do a startup because <laughs> a pessimist cannot do a startup. Yep. Um, but of course, like personal affection for the environment and personal like 
yeah, also bad feelings about that led me to this decision. So when I, so I'm an industrial designer by training, which means that I was trained to like develop products actually for the mass market. So quite the, like the other way that like the opposite of what I'm doing now. Now right, I'm trying to get things destroyed that are <laughs> on the mass market. You're trying to undo years learned, of work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> more or less. Like but, Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, <laughs> no, industrial design is, it, no, it's, uh, is one of the coolest studies I can recommend it to everybody. Because what you learn to do is I also how agree with to that. produce stuff. Yeah? Really? I do, yeah. I'm, I'm a big like fan. It? I mean, I, uh, like Apple, you know, like I, uh, Apple, like many of us, clued us into what design can be, right? Yeah. And I've been an Apple yeah. fan for years. I know it's cliche, but you get used to a certain standard of how things should look and how they should function and why they function in a certain way. And I think Steve Jobs was really good at pushing that forward for all of us and helping us all better understand how design fits into our lives. And professionally, I'm at this moment in my career, a, a marketer and I have a digital agency. So design and how things look and aesthetic and function and form and all of that, it, it plays a big role in my own life. And also I have a deep, deep, deep hatred of things that don't function as intended that are ugly or that break yeah. before their time. You know, I love yeah. a computer that's like, oh, this computer, I use it for 10 years or a knife that you can use for 30 years, you buy it once. Nothing infuriates me more than when I buy something off of Amazon for $29 and it breaks three weeks later and then it instantly becomes garbage and it goes straight to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and you think that just <laughs> sucks. That's why so, you yes, should buy I, things for twenty five nine dollars an episode. Well, of course, and that is the lesson. But again, what did you say? We like easy and we like cheap. Certainly yeah. in my country, we do. I don't know if things are a little better where you're at, but no, 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 no. <laughs> I think it's just a human thing to be like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's great. I like I like people that like uh, like good design because I think you can learn a lot from yeah good designers from design in general and from having an understanding of how things should function in the right way. And in my studies, uh, there was also a lot of technical, um, yeah, technical fields, which I was very fascinated by, especially the material part. I always like to know what things are made of and how like that works. Uh, but after my first study, so I studied uh, in in Venice, which sounds super fancy and it's not super fancy, <laughs> sure but at least it sounds oh, okay. fancy. Um, you gondolaed your after, way to work. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> no, that's why, that's why it's not fancy. Uh, right. But it, it's, it's still pretty. It's a really beautiful city. Um, so anyways, after my first studies, I started working as an industrial designer in the like normal industry. I worked in the sports industry. And oh, cool. when I was like designing things, I started to think like, why am I doing this? Like, this is not useful for anybody. This is like something that rich people are going to buy to have fun on slopes, but it doesn't help anybody for anything. And when I first signed up for industrial design, it said in the study description, it said it's for problem solving. So that was really my goal. I wanted to solve something, not make something worse than it is. <laughs> yes. So I went back to school and I went to the Technical University of Munich because I read there that they focus really on like big problems and like more social, uh, ecological things. 
And that's exactly what happened. So right in the first semester, uh, we were supposed to do a speculative design project about the topics that are near to our heart. So I started looking into plastic pollution. And that's where I read my first paper about plastic eating worms. And that's how it started. Well, that's so cool. And we're going to get into that in just one second. I just want to ask this one question. Do you ever wish that you didn't have that voice in your head? Doesn't it seem like life would be so much easier if you just (laughs) didn't care? Sometimes I wish it's like if I only care, if I could just try to sell you, say, hey, how to grow your agency to six figures a month here, make money, get rich quick. And that was just all I cared about in my life. I sometimes feel like it would be so much easier. But that stupid voice that says, hey, maybe the planet. Maybe the planet's not going to be in such good shape if we keep continuing yeah. like this. Do you sometimes wish that you just didn't have those thoughts, that you just stuck with the original career, you worked your way up the ladder and just made a boatload of money and you just slept peacefully every single night, not caring what happened with what you were building? <laughs> yes, every other day I do. <laughs> but, Especially um, because you do it and people are like, hey, you suck. <laughs> this is certainly for me. Every time I bring up a truly, you know, when I bring up yeah. ideas like this, people debate the existence of the great Pacific garbage patch to me sometimes. I'm like, just get in a plane. Like, you can see this. Well, that doesn't happen so often in Europe, fortunately. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And I, that's one of the things I miss about you. Right. They're yeah. like, yeah, OK, at least it exists. I know. So, all right. Well, that's good. It's comforting. That makes me feel a little yeah. more relieved, a little no, less alone. I, no, definitely. In this world. I mean, what I think, or what sometimes I see my friends, right? And they they did like normal careers and they're like stable right. now. They have their stable income. They don't need to worry all the time about things exploding in the lab or whatever because <laughs> they don't have right. a lab to worry about. Uh, and, and sometimes I think, why? Like, why would you do that to yourself? But then on the other days, when I, I don't know, I have a conversation like with you, on the other side of the world, that never happens to my friends, right? They never have a yep. podcast session with somebody from LA. So I think, okay, Ooh, this. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if you like the. If you, if you know the meme uh, where the kid is yeah. like a, a kid is on the picture and it says, "This kid is going places, not college, but places." So that's that's how yes, I feel yes, like. Yes, I feel like okay, this is leading somewhere. Maybe it's not. Right. <laughs> maybe it's not what I. It's supposed to be in the beginning. But it's leading somewhere interesting. So that's why I'm keep going. I, I completely agree. And and for me, it's the, it's these conversations as well that make it all worth it. And, and I also wouldn't have them as well unless you seek it out. So I, I, I'm with you there. But of course, there is something tempting about the life. And again, I can speak this from experience, knowing a lot about Europe, is that your friend's biggest concern is, you know what? that silver coffee maker that I have in my kitchen, it doesn't really match my white cabinets. So I'd better get a white coffee maker so that I have that total European symmetry. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that keeps some people up at night. It's like, if only, if only a $500 coffee maker could match the rest of my kitchen, then I would be truly happy versus, you know, all of this stuff. Um, all right, well, what so I have let's to get say back. for my friends' uh, honor that a lot of my friends also have startups. They have environmental oh, cool. uh, activities. They're activists. So uh, a lot of my friends are in this place as well. Okay. Well, maybe not your friends, but then some people. <laughs> other people's People that friends. I've known anyways. Yeah. <laughs> some other Those people. Ugh. Forget those people. 
<laughs> All right, so you came up with this idea, and and you know the company or the organization is called Bee Worm, B E Worm, um, but of course, play on words of bee, the bzz, buzzing around kind of bee. So we have learned that this type of it's larva, right? And there's an enzyme yeah. in the stomach of this uh, organism. And it's the enzyme that we're after. I know this from watching your video and from reading your site. It's the enzyme that we're after because well, it's not like you can have larva or... the enzyme. Okay. All right. Yeah. So there's this profound discovery that these things break down plastic and a specific type of plastic. So how did you come up with the idea that, okay, this might be something? Um, so it's not my only research. So there's more research about this. I yeah. have to say this uh, from the get-go. So mm -hmm. I started with a paper from an Italian researcher and she found out that this waxworm could actually eat plastics. So that was all that was known by then. And then I started looking into it with my team and we found some gut bacteria that could actually attack the plastics. So right now we have uh, 55 different bacteria strains that can attack polyethylene. But in the meantime, also the research uh, and the other like other researchers got got further, and the worm was actually discovered as being one of a of the best sources for this um, bacteria and microorganisms, and also enzymes that can that can split up plastics. But when we started, nobody really believed in it, and actually this uh, this researcher she had I think she had a t quite a tough time at the beginning because a lot of people were doubting her work, and now it's actually state of the art that there is something in the worm. But we usually, we focus on the microorganisms that we got from the worm's gut. That's so cool. And, and, and it's specifically polyethylene, which to yeah. me, I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, white trash culture. In the, when I, when I see, hear uh, polyethylene, <laughs> I think of like, hey, polyethylene, come on down. Like <laughs> the doors, you left the cooler open. It sounds like a name uh, that would be <laughs> somewhere in the south out here. But what's so special about what is so special about polyethylene? What types of things are polyethylene? I know grocery bags are. What else? Oh, a lot of things are polyethylene. Uh, foils, food wraps, um, all kinds of packaging that you have in the food cosmetics industry, um, car stuff. Um, basically. 34% of every plastic that we use is polyethylene. Uh, so it's the, okay. the most commonly used plastics. It's a polyolefin, which means that it's within the category of polyolefins. While, for example, um, PT, so the cola bottle that you mentioned before, that's um, PT, so that's a polyester. Like your shirt, maybe it's also polyester. Oh, and, good! Uh, Calling me out. Hey, it's from Goodwill. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not new, but no, you're right. It probably is. It's probably not good. And um, the kind of technology that we are developing is the furthest in the polyesters. So in the polyesters, there's also um, the research is quite far already. So uh, the degradation mechanism has been understood quite well. And it's already happening in a pilot scale. While for the polyolefins, which is P, PE, PP, and others, it's in the beginning. So it's really crucial for us and the other teams now to understand how the degradation pathway works and how we can make this more efficient. Because once we understood how it works, we can optimize it and use it in an industrial scale. Right now, it's only yeah. working in a lab scale. 
and mm. that's the that's the challenge here so the thing is um, for some types of plastics it's easier to break them down because uh, they're of their chemical structure but polyethylene is a really like stubborn one it has like a cc bonding in the backbone that sounds like really technical but basically you have to imagine that this is like just a really stable chemically inert thing so one of the crucial steps is to oxidize the surface in order for the microorganisms uh, and uh, bioagents to get in. So you need to have like really strong enzymes there that can do the job. Mm. And also what is also tricky and why nobody has like finally found out yet is that you need to have a combination of enzymes in order to break it down. So it's really crucial to understand who does what and how they do it in order to make it more efficient. While for other plastics, maybe just one or two enzymes are enough. For polyethylene, it's quite probable that you need a cascade of enzymes. Okay. It sounds so, quite complicated, right? <laughs> no, it, 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 it does. But I think, okay, so I'm trying to imagine the diagram that I saw on your website. And again, like you had a prize winning, the talk that you gave got you a prize, and we'll probably get into that in, in a second. But... The essential idea is that you can break this stuff down in theory and you can reuse it for other things such as uh, fuels and other uses, right? And even further processing. Now, I've seen there was a video doing the rounds on the Internet, like somebody just broke physics of some guy who was able to turn plastic bottles into fuel, basically gasoline of some kind. And everybody thought, oh, this is fantastic. But then somebody else pointed out, well, yes, I mean, they're, as you said, they originate from oil. They originate from byproducts of the oil industry. So the amount of energy that it takes to turn the plastic into a fuel is actually more energy than the fuel that it would produce, which is why plastics as they are may not be a viable solution for replacing gasoline or something like that. So when we're talking about like energy, and, and I might be, everything I might've just said might be completely wrong because I'm no. definitely an idiot, but <laughs> do you think that there is a path forward that we can get more energy out of this without expending more fossil fuels than we're going to get from it? Yeah, and that's the attractiveness of enzymatic recycling. So what you probably saw is chemical recycling, uh, which is the same principle, so breaking down a molecule, but on a chemical basis. So what you need to do there is to have high temperatures and high pressures in order to break the chains down. But enzymatic or biocatalytic recycling uses natural agents, so basically natural, um, yeah, natural enzymes that do the job without high temperatures and high pressures. That's the, the whole attractiveness of biotic recycling. And the, um, the goal is to make them work under en environmental conditions. So in our lab, we work with uh, 30 seven degree temperature and normal pH, normal, normal pressure. And if you get it to work under these conditions, you save a lot of energy. And mm. that's, will, that would be the, the holy grail of, of recycling if you could do it with these environmental conditions. Um, so what we know from PT recycling, which as I told you is already a few steps further in the development, is that some mm, companies or one company especially um, developed it but still used quite high temperatures not as high as uh, as in chemical recycling but they were still a little bit too high 
just recently, uh, a researcher had a breakthrough and had the, this PT recycling process uh, being very efficient under very low temperatures. So, um, and once that is happening, that's like super good because then it's really environmental because friendly. And, and only 12% is recycled as it currently is, right? 12% of yeah. plastic goes anywhere meaningful right now, right? Yeah, but everything goes into mechanical recycling right now. So no, basically okay. nothing is recycled on a raw material level yet because the processes are not ready yet. I mean, I think in the US, uh, um, maybe one or 2% is recycled on a chemical level. But also these chemical processes, okay. oh. processes as, as you just said, um, they are not super scalable. Either they are not super scalable yet, or they are not super energy efficient yet, or they require certain conditions that are not super um, economically viable yet. So all these raw material processes, they are still in the development. And the thing is with mechanical recycling is that that's what we use now, right? It's happening on a physical level. So you have to imagine it's basically just like ripping off the plastics, uh, melting them down again and making you new plastics out of it. And with every cycle you use quality. So right. no matter what mechanical recycling you do, you will always use quality. And usually you use a lot of quality. So the whole cosmetics and food sector in Europe kind of is not even allowed to use recycled plastics because the quality is not food food grade. So even if mechanical recycling would work perfectly, which it doesn't, but even if it would, uh, it would never be enough for the whole plastics that we put out there. And the right. the biggest problem comes from layered, colored, and contaminated materials that are not feasible for any kind of mechanical recycling. And that's particularly the fractions that we will address. That's amazing. So what did, you, <laughs> did you have a moment where you felt like, okay, I'm really on to something? Did you have a moment when you're, you know, 2 a.m. in the laboratory when you're just like, yes, we've got it, uh, <laughs> or a series of encouraging things, or... I mean, we discovered uh, a new microorganism last year, like, and that means that like nobody on, in the world found it before. That was like a moment where I thought, like, hmm, or maybe maybe we're on something. And also, when like the, the the video that you saw when I because that was a, like a science conference, and I'm not a scientist, right? So I I couldn't imagine to be like honored by scientists because i always thought like okay um i'm giving my yeah, best here but right. uh, <laughs> but i'm far away from being like yeah honored by these people right so but i, I went way. to this right exactly <laughs> i went to this conference and we applied for the pitching slot there and first of all we already won like the pitching slot which was like eight selected uh groups which was great so it was like wow how did that, that this happen it was like 400 contestants from all over the world and then we when i was backstage with all the other startups and people i talked to them and i was like okay <laughs> this is like this is not my league they're like here and i'm somewhere yeah, there right i'm just gonna get out there and hope that they're not gonna throw tomatoes at me and and leave right 
And um, I mean, that's literally how I feel in interviews like this. I feel the very <laughs> same way. It's like I hope they're not going to. Well, th- the only thing is, you can't throw a tomato at me from thousands of miles away, but that you could throw hard. it at your screen. I'm yeah. not good at throwing, so uh, a few okay, thousand right. kilometers are out of my league. That's as the way well. I feel. I'm just like. <laughs> If somebody sticks around for an hour, I'm happy. I'm like, really? A whole hour? <laughs> okay, all right. Making progress. Um, anyway, to finish there, the story. Okay, so, yeah, please. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, unless it's boring, then I'm not going to finish it. Oh. <laughs> now, um, so, uh, yeah, I... So there was this 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 pitch on the small stage, and I, I was like, I just went out there and was like, I'm just going to give my best hope. Hopefully they're not going to laugh at me, at me. But I think in that moment I realized, okay, maybe we have something serious here because they were, were looking at me like, oh yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> and then we won this and then we went on the big stage and the big stage meant like thousands of scientists, like Nobel laureates oh and everything. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Okay. Maybe, maybe really onto something here. Maybe, maybe we are, on the right path here and i that was actually the, one of the proudest moments in my life when i stood there and i was like the hell is happening here <laughs> but yeah that was great wow but sometimes that, that i also think uh, bring, we're way uh, off <laughs> yeah. well maybe it's maybe it's a little bit of both but it does bring up an interesting point because a lot of this stuff feels so scientific and it feels so far out there and unknowable and ununderstandable. But your story is so interesting because it's proof that you can pursue something like this, not necessarily having a PhD in a scientific field, that you yeah. can still make a difference versus saying like, oh, I'm an English major. There's nothing I can do, which is the way I often feel. I majored in English and film. So I, I trained very hard to be unemployable for the rest of my life. So. <laughs> It gives me hope that maybe I could contribute somehow in the future yeah. some way. No, everybody can. That's that's for sure. And that's something that I always thought since I was a small kid, that you can teach yourself a lot of things. And if you want something and you aim for something, you can make it happen. Maybe it's not the easiest way, and maybe you do you have a you have a limit, but I'm always interested in seeing how far I can go. And this is actually the thought that I started with. I never thought, oh, I want to do a startup that is super successful. I don't care about money at all. Um, so what I thought is, I think this is interesting. I think somebody should try to take it to the, to the next level. I'm sitting here, I'm reading this, so I'm supposed. I'm probably I'm supposed to be the one to try to take this to the next level and that's what I did and I still don't know where my limit is maybe it's gonna be in a few years maybe it's gonna be in a few days <laughs> but a few days oh god this um, is it <laughs> you never know right um but I, I was know. I'm surprised how far just the pure willpower took me because I really didn't know anything about biotechnology when I started. I just read an article and I started watching YouTube videos and I started reading more articles and I watched more YouTube videos. And then I found two great scientists who teamed up with me. And then it just became an organic thing. And sometimes when I look at the team, how it is now and the people who are working with us and like professors helping us out, the smartest people that you can imagine, I'm like, 
how <laughs> how did this happen but like in a good way yeah and i'm that's so how many that, people I'm, are working with you um, how many people are on your team now so we're four founders two okay. scientists two non-scientists uh we do have a lot of um like satellites though because we're working in a technical university of munich we do have a really great professor that is our mentor and is our major support we do work with another chair as well so we do have a lot of like chairs and and other scientists that we're working with and we also actually like to exchange a lot with people in the field uh, i think i know most of the people who are in the field from some conference from some like discussion and it's still a pretty open field so people are still really happy to connect because there's not so much competition out there so it's not super competitive yet it's getting a little bit a little bit, little bit more competitive but it's still super open and yeah so it's just great to to work on something like that with a lot of different people do you feel that in, a, in an environment like this, competition is good? I've had that feeling. In traditional business, competition is bad. But in this kind of area, competition is good because it means more smart people are trying to solve these problems that yeah. aren't going away. Yeah. No, definitely. And also, especially because I, in the first place, want the problem to be solved. I'm, I'm kind of like having mixed feelings about competition because I'm sometimes I'm also super happy when the competition discovers something because I think, yes, somebody made a big progress here. I shouldn't probably because I should be more competitive. But yeah, for me, the overall thing is always more important than, than being the best or the first or whatever. And I personally feel in this, in this field, there is still so much work to do um, that I'm not, not mad about competition right now. Mm. I so don't know like, the other the way around, though. It could be that the competition is mad about us. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're mad about you. <laughs> well, okay, I'll say that that's probably, it could be the case, but then, of course, it would call into question what their values are, if that were the case. And then that brings up the other question of whether it matters what one's values are if the end result is positive, sort of if the ends do justify the means. If I really don't care about anything but my own personal glory, but the net result is that the Great Pacific garbage patch goes away, is that still a win? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but it, it does bring up an interesting point that I think a lot of people, and I wrestle with this a lot as well, which is how does money fit into all of this? Because... You said you don't care about the money, and I, I don't really care about money at all either. I don't care about cars or fancy toys. I like things that help me create better. I care more about cameras and microphones and things that help me do more versus stuff that just looks good, like a, fast, a faster car or a nicer version of this. I don't care about any of that. But we do live, and, and certainly here in the United States and certainly here in my area, in a very expensive world that is only getting more expensive. So money is on the mind of so many people who want to do good. How do you balance these short-term needs of, I want to take care of my family, I want to pay my bills, I don't want to be broke or in debt or study debt, which again may not apply as much to Europeans as Americans, but I also want to do good in the world. How do you juggle those things knowing that we can't live completely free of the need for money in this world yeah. that we're in? Hmm, that's a tricky one. Um, first of all, I want to 
point out another thing about money. So I think money is a great enabler, especially for sustainability, because as you said, most people, or we live in a capitalistic world, right? So money is the driver of everything. And the reason why I turned this into a startup was, was this. I wanted to show people that this can something they, is something that they could make money out of in order to force them into this direction. And I yeah. personally think when big multinationals uh, try to be more sustainable and put money into sustainable technologies, that is a major driver of change. So that's that. I just wanted to say that because it, it it's not that I don't think about money, but I see money and business and everything in our world as it is as a major enabler for technologies like ours. Yeah. If it would be just a research project, nobody would care. That's for sure. And then um, on your second question, so I think I mean obviously I'm 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 coming. Also from a quite privileged background, I would say not not like super privileged, but like standard European background. Um, but I also always worked. My parents have a hotel. I I'm, I know that I have to work hard for money, but I'm also willing to work hard. And I think for me, it's as long as like I can live from something and. Like, I don't have super high needs. I also uh, traveled for one year, living from, like, one small backpack. And this is where I learned that Awesome. I don't need much to be happy. What concerns me more in the long term is that, um, like, I want to have a family at one point, right? And I need to provide for a family. So this is obviously something that gives me some sleepless nights. But just for myself, yeah. I always made it uh, possible that I can eat and live, and that's enough. I, I don't buy a lot of things. Uh, a lot of people are making fun of me because my, <laughs> my closet is so small. Like My boyfriend's closet is like three times mine. Um, nice. That's awesome. But the funny thing is, um, I don't really care, and I don't know a lot of people who do care, really. So I think a lot of the consumerism that we do is just in our own minds. And it's a really liberating feeling to not, yeah, to not go for it so much. I don't see that people who have more or who buy more are happier than I am. Actually, I think sometimes right. they're unhappier because they try to compensate something I, in their selves so. with stuff that they buy. <laughs> And I've said it before, but if you've ever seen that movie, probably 10 years ago, I think it was called The Queen of Versailles about this very rich family and they had so much stuff. And that movie really drove home to me watching how they dealt with all that stuff. That stuff is just a burden. It's just yeah. a problem because they had to deal with it. all the stuff you have is stuff that you have to deal with. And if you die, somebody else has to deal with it. Exactly. It's basically just garbage that's just transmuted to it or, you know, to another or commuted to another date. But um, where did you travel for that year? Just as a quick side. Um, New Zealand, Australia, and Southeast Asia. Okay. So far yeah. away. That's awesome. So you far, really far away. <laughs> yeah. Which is great. 
I mean, that's yeah. travel is such a big, big component of the stories that we've we've heard on this show. And that seems it's just a theme that comes up. I didn't ask you, you know, it's, I didn't know that, but it comes up over and over again that people have a broader perspective on the world. They seem to have done a lot of travel it comes up all the yeah. time. Um, yeah, I think. And I feel the same way you feel. Yeah. yeah. About stuff and and that. Uh, you know, sometimes when I see people with a lot of stuff or even like if when I see like my worst nightmare is to go into a shop where a lot of stuff is around because it kind of like yeah. makes me feel like I get anxiety from full shops because <laughs> it's like yes. it's too much. It's for me. And then I'm thinking about all the ways that is created there. And I'm like, oh, this is never going to go away. And yeah, no. so I'm, I'm actually I have nightmares about malls. <laughs> I, you know, I'm completely with you and I have, I have a four year old daughter. And one of the things that I have nightmares about is that when people see a kid, the immediate thing, there's a gift, it's a birthday, there's a Christmas, there's a holiday. It's here's a piece of plastic, a plastic toy. Yeah. But so much of this accumulates and I'm thinking like, please stop, like no more toy, anything, like get a membership to a zoo or a, a botanical gardens, just not any more of these toys. And it's yeah. hard because it's so ingrained in our life and Amazon makes it so easy. It's, oh, I can't, I can't be there, but I can order you a toy. I can order you a gift from Amazon. It'll be there tomorrow, even though you're yeah. thousands of miles away. But, you know, th yeah. there, there's a point that I want to touch on because I, I – uh, uh, go ahead, I guess. I do have a, a thing to say. but No, um, I just thought about it. And, um, I mean, I think it's also, again, an, a natural human thing that we want to collect. I think it's just in our like genes that uh, we want to have a lot of stuff because we're used to – we used to be, like, way back – uh, in the situation where we didn't have anything unless we found like, I don't know, a tree with some fruit on it. And then we had to collect everything in order to like, yep. get the best out of this one time situation where we have a lot. And now we always have a lot and we cannot handle this always having a lot. This is also why such a lot of people are obese, right? Because the human, like the, our ancestors brain was still in there. I'm not an expert. More, I'm just more, saying yeah. it in my own words right now. It's still, right. no, no, me, me neither. It's still I'm, in the I'm, phase I'm, where you say, oh, we have well. to collect, we have to eat, uh, we need to right. gain as much as possible. And it's really hard to overcome that. And I wouldn't say that that I have, um, that I'm already on the next level there. I just try to hold myself back. And especially during the yeah. travels, I, I realized how much lighter and easier you feel if you don't have a lot of stuff i know it's crazy it's absolutely crazy and like you know i've said it before but i've i've traveled and i've moved twice with nothing but a couple suitcases and you realize that there's not a whole lot that you actually need i can't live without my computer that's one thing i can't live without <laughs> but if i have my computer i'm halfway there really computer and power <laughs> and a phone and i'm halfway there to doing pretty much whatever i want to do uh but you, you touched upon the, this idea of, okay, privilege, you say. You came from a normal European background, which is, you know, privilege. And I, I don't know the specifics of your upbringing, but that doesn't really matter. Because I, I did a post recently about Greta Thunberg and why, why does she get so much hate? And there were so many negative comments. Like, and one of them was that she was from a privileged background and therefore everything that she said or did didn't matter. Because she's from a rich, and I don't even know if this is true, by the way. I don't know enough about her personal life to know whether this is true. 
I just know that somebody said that. So the idea that if somebody is from a privileged background and they dedicate their life towards trying to improve the climate or science or whatever, that that is somehow discounted or discredited by virtue of their upbringing. Whereas in my mind, it seems to me to be the exact opposite. I wish that more people of privilege recognized that they had a privilege and said, hey, I'm going to try to do something good with my position of privilege versus just trying to grease the ladder and further increase the gap between the wealthy and the not wealthy so that nobody else can ever become rich like me. I have a lot yeah. more... Uh, uh, belief in somebody who come from a privileged background and, and chooses to do that with their time and their money and their life versus somebody who spends their whole life just trying to build the next billion dollar business and further distance themselves from the rest of humanity. So it's just interesting the way that we as a society think about Definitely. those types of things. Definitely. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't really think that it should play a role in the evaluation of somebody's work but right. I'm definitely on, on your side here um, when it comes to I think like let's put it that way I think if you had the luck to be privileged especially in education and that's where I see my biggest privilege in because my grandparents they were coming from a poor um, farmer background as everybody back in Italy in their days so I'm actually one of the first people in my family who could study. And wow, awesome. having that studies and that knowledge as like gift to yourself and not making anything out of it, that's where I think, uh, yeah, that's, that shouldn't be the case, right? So if you are privileged and you can study and you are in a great university, I think you should be happy about that gift and make the best out of it. And I think, I, I and that's what makes me upset a little bit about a lot of people in Europe. I think it's a bit less in the US because you have to pay a lot for the studies, but here in Europe, people no don't kidding. pay or pay, don't pay a lot. So they take this for granted. And then, then they just go into like jobs where they just sit on a chair for 60 years and get yeah. their pay check. Right. And I and think you can't like, get fired. Yeah. yeah. And I think like, how, how could you do this to, to people who are, don't have the privilege to, to get to university, to go to university, to get all that knowledge for free? How can you not make something out of it? And I see, and th I think that concerns me a lot about Europe in general, that people have become so saturated and so, like, I don't know, yeah, just, they're way too spoiled. <laughs> they're too spoiled in everything that they get for free, and they take it for granted, and nobody wants to work hard anymore in, or in order to take it to the next level or to solve the problems that we're facing. Everybody agrees that we have problems, but everybody is like, oh, yeah, we have problems, but yeah, I'm just going to wait around until somebody else solves them. Yeah, and I, I think here one of the most insidious things is that the average person, I mean, we that's a difference between Europe and America is that here people – the American way of life or this dream as it's been sold to people for generations like my great grandmother who immigrated from Italy, the dream of coming to America, the American dream of the white picket fence and the house and the two car garage and this way of life, it sort of suggests to people that 
the ideal life is just maintaining that status quo. Yeah. Say, don't bother me with your talk of garbage patches. Don't bother me with your talk of plastic or environmental crisis. I don't want to hear about it. All I want to do is have my two-car garage, my house, my white picket fence. I want to eat hamburgers and barbecue, and I want to do all of these things. And I don't ever want to think about anything else ever in my life because it's an inconvenience. And Al Gore titles his thing, An Inconvenient Truth. And he's ridiculed forever by everybody. And South Park makes fun of him forever, you know, (laughs) because nobody wants to hear about it. And there's this belief that, hey, you know what, Eleonora, you do you, let me do me, okay? Don't tell me what I should do. You do your thing. But it's like, folks, these problems affect all of us. Whether you believe in them or not does not change the fact that they affect all of us and will only affect all of us more in the coming years. The Great Garbage Patch is not going to get smaller if you just keep doing what you're going to do. So it's like, at what point will people, you know, here's a tornado that never used to be there. Here's flooding where there never used to be flooding. Here's drought where there never used to be drought. At what point do you think will people take notice and realize that, hey, we've got some problems? I think as long as they're not it's not affecting their own personal wealth and life it will not happen or and that's yeah, what I, I agree. what is um where the the loop closes itself to what i said before or where there is a business opportunity for them to get so i think <laughs> or what i see right. from from all these big multinationals that we're talking to, it's not like they want to be good people or whatever, but they see, okay, we're going to get forced to pay for all the plastics that we're putting out there by law. So we just have to come up with a solution in order to not pay a lot of money. This could be something that is a business opportunity for us. We could make money out of that. And that's why I'm kind of trying to sell them that in order to put them into the into this path and i think and this actually i discussed that recently with a friend of mine who's an activist for for last generation and he like he says the most important thing is to change the politics and i think that's a really important thing but i think unfortunately our whole system is based on capitalism so as long as you don't change that, or as long as you don't make the sustainability fit into this capitalistic needs, it's not going to change. And that's why I'm going for the startup path, not because I think uh, building a business is such a cool thing, because I th- just because I think building a business is what attracts people in this world and what they think... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's attractive. So, yeah, that's uh, yeah, kind of the reason why I went into this startup path. Yeah, and I'm with you. And of course, for somebody such as myself, the secret holy grail, or maybe not so secret is, yes, I would like to be able to take care of myself and my family. I would like to be able to have a good standard of living while making the world a better place. I want both of those things. And I think that there is a growing number of people who do want both of those things. Yeah who don't want to live, for example, in total poverty, but they also want to make a, a difference. And I, I think you're very smart in the way that you have identified that and you're thinking about it, because I do agree that that's probably our best chance to get some of the things that we want done actually done. 
And we know what doesn't work. We know that just yelling at people or appealing to people's better natures, we know that doesn't work. We know trying to convince people doesn't work. But at the end of the day, there are other ways of sort of sneaking this change in there. And I think you're very smart to have identified those, honestly. Um, So now you've got this point where you're sort of at this cusp. I mean, it's a relatively new concept, a relatively new startup, only a handful of years, but the signs are good. It's encouraging. So what do you think the most what are you most optimistic about yourself in the next five to 10 years? Let's say everything goes according to your wildest dreams. <laughs> what do you think kind of change you might be able to make? Like what would be the best that you could hope for? Mm, so of course, if the process really works out, that will be a key uh, technology. Um, but despite from the technology part, I I recently got a few messages from random people from all over the world uh, telling me that they were inspired by, I don't know, things that I said or, uh, I don't know, they watched, we also have like a small little podcast, they watched our podcast and just like giving some other young folks hope that they can actually do something even if it doesn't seem they can do something that um, keeps me going and um, I can see some some progress there so I can see that um, more and more people are getting intrigued by the topic and we're kind of expanding the idea a little bit so yeah that my if I dream big I would wish that I could build a system of solutions within the next 10 years with the technology obviously being a part, but also with some other ideas that I have in my mind being a part of it that go more into the educational part and also in the part to give people an awareness about things. And I don't know, maybe being a a spokesperson for this this kind of topic would be great. Hey, you can have my job. I think you'll do a better (laughs) job than me, so... Uh, go for it. The audience is like, please, for the love of God, just kick him out already. Kick him out of his own show. It'll make the show no, better. You're doing a great, great uh, job. All right. And you have a better, better oh, background. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? The best I've done is like, oh, we got some purple. We got some light bulbs. We got some keep. Uh, That's really good. Very, very, very cutting edge stuff that we're dealing with here. Uh, okay. So in under one minute, because my attention span is so short right now, in under one minute, if, if, if the commercialization of your idea comes to pass and under one minute, describe the process from start to finish, ideally, what's the input, what's the output? The input are waste fractions that are not feasible for any kind of existing recycling. So uh, contaminated colors and layered plastics, they will be put into a bioreactor. The bioagents are going to break them down into oligomers. These oligomers could be something like ethylene glycol or ethanol. And these are basic chemicals that can be reused to produce new plastics or to produce other stuff in the petrochemical industry. So you have a fully closed loop, sustainable, resource-saving recycling process. That was under one minute. All right, great. (laughs) You passed. Shark Tank, Dragon's Den, we all say yes. You got the investments. Uh, (laughs) 
<laughs> you did it. Phew. Okay, the hardest part of the interview is now over. Uh, the, the, I, I can't thank you enough for sitting down and sharing this. I think it's fa fascinating, fabulous. And again, you know, one look at your website, uh, which again we'll share here, is and and you clearly see the problem. You clearly see the solution. You clearly see, in my opinion, why it's so exciting. So I can't thank you enough for for taking a chance on this new career path, both for yourself and for the planet. <laughs> And also for sitting down with me and sharing your thoughts. Uh, it's very refreshing to hear how you see the world. And it makes me feel better about uh, the future that we're all coming into. So really, really, really oh, want to say you. thanks for that. The last bit of this show is yours. So what would you like to promote? Where can people support you or follow you? And then you'll close us out. Um, everybody can adopt a worm if they want. <laughs> on our website so basically it. you can adopt okay. the worm uh give him a name him or her uh, a name and be a worm supporter uh you, you also get uh, to be featured on our worm wall of fame uh, so it's just a little like contribute to our research uh it's really capital intense so every euro or dollar or whatever currency you have in your country uh counts or, yeah, just listen to our podcast. We have been a little bit uh, lazy, not lazy lately. We have been quite busy, but uh, we will put out yeah, another episode say. hopefully soon. <laughs> yeah, it's it's more like a passion project, but I really like to do it because, as I told you, I love podcasts. So, um, yeah, you can listen to our podcast. You can follow us on LinkedIn. You can, I don't know, do your own plastic uh, solving thing. That would also right. be really nice. And yeah. And the uh, website is beworm.org, B-E-W-O-R-M.org. Fabulous stuff. So thanks again, Eleonora. And with that, the official Thank podcast you. is over. So Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.